The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And this is Jason Poblet. Welcome to another podcast with the Global Liberty Alliance, as usual, coming to you from across the river from occupied D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia. Today we have with us uh, Dr. Michael Waller. Mike is a senior analyst at the, uh, for strategy at the Center for Security Policy. His areas of concentration are propaganda, political warfare, psychological warfare, and subversion. He holds a Ph.D. in international security affairs from the university professor's program at Boston University. And this is my favorite part of uh, favorite part of his bio. He received his military training as an insurgent with the Nicaraguan Contras, our fellow freedom fighters in, in Nicaragua, which I hope we'll talk a little bit about today. He was the co-founder of the Blue Team on China in the 1990s and for 13 years uh, was the Walter and Leonor Annenberg Professor of International Communications at the best graduate school in Washington, D.C., the Institute of world politics, where he designed and taught the world's only graduate program on public diplomacy, political warfare, and was part of the team that developed the very first civilian master's degree in DC for US Army officers in lieu of attending the US Army War College. He is currently the president also of the Georgetown Research, a political risk and private intelligence company in DC, where he can tell us a little about what that company does. It's pretty interesting. And he's also a guest instructor at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center at school at Fort Bragg. I'm going to include his bio on there with links to some of the great writings that he has done in many publications and uh, also some of, some of his work. Mike, how are you doing today? Hey, Jason, it's good to be with you. Great. Thanks for joining us. And tell us a little bit about, you know, a lot of folks like to know how folks, uh, we have a lot of young listeners and they always ask us in email or when we speak to them about how can I get more involved in some of the work, for example, that you do, how did, you know, what was your road to international and security type work? I think I got my start in high school and it was not in really intending to be uh, an international oriented person because I grew up in a rural area. I got involved um, because I liked the environment. I liked being out in the woods and being out on the ocean. And uh, they were building a nuclear power plant in my state, and I got involved in the protest movement against it because I was concerned how the uh, boiling water from the reactor's cooling system would be pumped out into the sea and then destroy the fish beds where I'd fish with my grandfather. So I got involved in that movement. I was 15 years old, and uh, in one of the meetings, these were professional activists from California who... who uh, were training us. And then they said, why are you in this movement? And I explained why. And they laughed at me and said how wrong I was because the movement is really about overthrowing American capitalism. Wow. That's awesome. So that made me realize, <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. So then I gradually learned um, uh, from my grandfather and, and my dad uh, what, uh, what a communist front group was, what communist subversion was, and what 
dupes and useful idiots were and I was <laughs> on the way to becoming a, a dupe and a useful idiot. Awesome. So, so of course, so that, of course there, there is no, quick. and of course that doesn't happen anymore, right? There's no more communist subversion happening anywhere in the world. Right. Oh, no, not at all. No, not at all. <laughs> the people who were doing it then are no longer doing it now. No, yeah. no, no. Fellow so, travelers are no more. So oh, that, that's a great story. So and then, and then you went to graduate school. I mean, then you went to went college. You got kept going. And that's how you found your way to this. Yeah. And the key is just to get involved. And just because you're you're uh, a teenager or a college student or, or just a young professional, uh, you know, don't let people say that your point of view doesn't have value. And don't let yourself be marginalized. Just get in there. Be helpful be involved, listen more than you speak and learn a lot. And, and so, and that's how you can go ahead and do things. And then also, you know, don't BS with people, just be, just do what you say you'll do. And you'll, uh, you'll end up be, being able to do whatever you really want to do. It's, it's just a question of, it's also like a Forrest Gump type of thing where you happen to be in a certain place at a certain time and there are certain people. So depending on the person, there's a, there's a bit of luck or, or misfortune involved, whichever way you want to look at it. If if those of you who are listening want to follow him, you should. A, at J. Michael Waller is his Twitter handle, and it's pretty witty and entertaining, but also educational. Um, important uh, statements he puts out there that we're kind of lacking in this town right now. But before we get to our subject matter, Western Hemisphere Beyond Drugs and Thugs, what do you think's happened? I mean, you, you've been in D.C. in and out for a long time. You, you worked with some pretty famous scholars and policy people, including someone that a lot of folks may not know who he is, Constantine Menges, who was a Western Hemisphere person, a security person. Uh, it seems to me, I've only been here since the early 1990s, but it seems like this town, there's been a gradual um, erosion of serious thinkers and, act, and, and policy people. What, what, what has happened? And, and do you think that's a correct statement? Oh, yeah, it's declined a lot. I first came to Washington when I was a college freshman in the fall of 1980. So Jimmy Carter was still president and he was running for reelection against Ronald Reagan. Uh, I grew up in New Hampshire and I was too young to vote in the New Hampshire primary, but then my birthday was in the spring. So I voted for Reagan by absentee ballot uh, from George Washington University as the first vote I ever cast in my life uh, in the fall of 1980. And it was a different place back then because you could actually have discussions with people and it wouldn't trigger everybody. Uh, I mean, you still get denounced as a, you know, racist or extremist or whatever, but I mean, you could have, those are just the nutcases, you know, on the, on the absolute fringes, <laughs> but the people who were the nutcases back when I was in college are the senior faculty members and deans and uh, judges and congressmen of today. So, so it's a very, <laughs> it's like these people who never grew up then have still never grown up. And they're these, these snowflake, uh, you know, extremists who just want to shut everybody up. And, and literally I followed, you know, I haven't wanted to, but I ended up following the careers of some of these people who I knew back in college. And I see where some of them have gone. And it's, it's like, if more good people aren't out there countering these people, we're going to be conquered by those who really hate our country and would have no problem having us put up against the wall. When you're talking about people who hate our country or our way of life, um, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed, by the way. I, I, I don't know if I'm getting older, but when I went to the Hill a few months ago, I had to brief some folks about 
something happening in Nicaragua in a case that we're working on. And I, um, I, I wasn't, well, the question will tell you everything. This person looks over at me. Hey, can you please tell me, you said something that I didn't, I didn't know what you meant. Who are the Contras? And this was a Republican office, by the way. And I had to actually school someone diplomatically, by the way. Uh, I, I was not a rude person. Uh, I, I, I explained who the Contras were, but they didn't know who the Contras were, uh, which was kind of a shocker. And this yeah. was a Latin America expert, supposedly, in this congressional office. So it's um, yeah. quite, a, quite a, I don't know. What yeah, people... that's the level of, of expertise you get what? in a lot of these congressional offices. Yeah, you, you can't fault someone for not knowing because then you can school them and say, well, this is what they were and this is what they did and this is what they stood for. <laughs> And yeah. this is the strategy they were in and like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Right. Um, mm. But so so it's kind of yeah, it's disheartening to see how ignorant these experts are, even those who are on our side. But at least, you know, they're open to they're open, they're right. open to being yeah. uh, and they're trying. Right? And that's great. Well, and, yeah. and, and, and the enemy question this is what we we're talking about. We, we were talking about Russia. Uh, we you wrote your dissertation, your doctoral dissertation um, about uh, the KGB in Russia. I think it was the KGB in Russia today. I think it was called Secret Empire. That was your your dissertation. And right. Uh, let's let's jump into the hemisphere a minute. You know, and, and talk about Russia in the hemisphere. We had um, um, you know, it, the Latin America policy people or people who follow Latin America policy uh, tend to think that it's uh, or some people tend to think it's only drugs and thugs, right? So it's only drug dealers and criminal cartels that we have to worry about, which is a very myopic view, I think to view the, the hemisphere that way. But uh, we could talk about drugs and thugs, but I'd rather talk about Russia and China and, and things that, because you've written a lot about this. Why are countries like Russia and China so fascinated by meddling in the Americas in the many ways that they do? Well, there are, there are a whole lot of reasons and all of them make sense. And, and the weird thing is not that those countries are doing that because that's what great power politics is geopolitics is all about uh the, the strange part is how many americans deny the obvious mm. and then denounce you for being the truth teller mm. so i mean think of it when you're in a rivalry whether it's a military rivalry or a trade rivalry you're going to want to get the advantage over the opposing side so one of the ways to get an advantage over the opposing side is to develop footholds or political influence or economic influence in the neighborhood of that rival. So it makes perfect sense for uh, China or Russia or even smaller powers like Iran to develop footholds of one kind or another in Latin America, because then they can have political, economic, uh, military, and subversive bases of operations pretty much on our southern border with a land bridge straight into the country where they can come and go pretty much as they please. So, so it makes perfect sense from all of those points of view, especially if you're a corrupt regime that also uh, uses drugs and thugs as their main instruments of operation against us. That's right. So, mm -hmm. so none of this should become any surprise, but you've got, of course, this is what our founding fathers even recognized. And though the generation right after the founding fathers under President uh, James Monroe, uh, with the Monroe Doctrine, was to uh, to ensure that there would be no influence of powers outside the hemisphere who could recolonize the hemisphere, which was just becoming independent of Spain, uh, Portugal, 
France, uh, Britain, and the and even the Netherlands, other colonial powers in the region. And so the United States was backing the births of these new republics, who, if you look at even some of their own founding documents, are borrowed heavily from the American Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. That's right. So it was a it was a hemispheric solidarity statement of the Monroe Doctrine to say we're going to keep all the European powers that there were no real Asian powers across the ocean. We're going to keep all the European powers out of the hemisphere and we're going to ensure the sovereignty of our hemispheric neighbors. And so so this was back in 1823. Uh, then you have the uh, the Germans trying to use Mexico in World War One where the Mexican Revolution is going on at the same time as the Bolshevik Revolution is occurring and the same time as World War I is occurring all at the same time. And so the Germans, in order to keep the United States away from Europe and to not help Britain and, and France, uh, had a plot uh, by Foreign Minister Zimmerman to have the Germans arm certain elements of the Mexican revolutionaries to help Mexico recover territories lost to the United States. And so, so it was when the British broke the code of the Zimmerman telegram, that's really what prompted the United States, which didn't want to get involved in a European war, to uh, go to war against Germany because Germany was trying to invade us by proxy uh, mm -hmm. from the South. So, so it's been this way now for what, 200 years. Uh, and so to see China get involved now it's logical that they would. Why deny that they would? But they're doing it right under our noses. And not only that, we're helping to finance it. Yeah, and that's, I mean, we're going to talk about that in one second. But I want to ask you one parting comment about the Monroe Doctrine. You know, I thought John Kerry told me in 2013, the era of the Monroe Doctrine is over. So I guess, I guess nothing really, you know, it ended, right? So we don't care anymore about what happens in our hemisphere, do we? I mean, that's, that's the way some people uh, on their side, tend to think about this thing. I tend to think quite the opposite. The Monroe Doctrine has evolved, and uh, there's a way to look at our hemisphere. It's one of the few places in the hemisphere. Some conservatives don't agree with me on this. I'm not a big fan of intervention with you know pretty much anywhere in the world. But when it comes to our region, I think we have to kind of uh, do and be vigilant to what our adversaries. And by the way, it's not just Russians and Chinese. Uh, even the Europeans are down here causing all sorts of mischief, like in Cuba. I mean, they've been keeping up a uh, the Spanish are notorious for keeping the Cuba regime afloat. The Paris Club this week has been negotiating another debt renegotiation for the Cuba regime, um, even though they're trafficking in property stolen from American citizens. But why did John Kerry say such a thing? And then we get John Bolton, by the way, give another speech and this back and forth. Do you think the Monroe Doctrine is going to, it wasn't, it wasn't, in fact, it wasn't just Bolton. I believe that Tillerson, before he left the Trump administration, gave a pretty big speech in Texas about the Monroe Doctrine. Why do you think these people struggle so much with this? And do you think it's dead or has it, been, has it evolved into something a little more modern? It's evolved. The basic principles are the same, which means no, no power from outside our hemisphere shall have a presence in this hemisphere of an imperial nature, whether mm -hmm. it's the, the, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the French Empire, the Portuguese Empire, uh, or or later the or the Nazis or the Soviets or the Chinese now I mean it's, so it's a it's an enduring value it's just that the Monroe Doctrine had had specified Europe at the time because there were no other global imperial powers John Kerry's always wanted to get rid of the Monroe Doctrine mm -hmm. think back just before you came to Washington 
uh, Jason, but it's uh, when he first became a U.S. senator, he supported the communists in Central America. That's right. He supported the, the Fidel Castro-backed forces. He wanted to have unconditional normalization of relations with the communists in Cuba and without demanding anything from them in return. And, uh, with, and then, so he stood uh, uh, side by side with Daniel Ortega against President Reagan. And he helped the communist guerrillas in El Salvador. So to see him when he is, when Obama picks him as Secretary of State to announce the Monroe Doctrine is is dead or it's over, that's a dream come true for John Kerry. <laughs> yeah. And it even goes back further. He makes a, a big deal about how he served in the Vietnam War as what hundreds of thousands, if not what a million Americans did. Uh, mm -hmm. But as soon as he got back from Vietnam, what did he do? He started supporting the enemy. Yeah. In the guise of being against the war, he was with people who were waving communist North Vietnamese flags and chanting for North Vietnamese Communist Party leader Ho Chi Minh. John Kerry was there. So for him to say that he was a patriot who fought for his country, uh, lots of bad guys. Lee Harvey Oswald was a Marine. <laughs> right? so, so, so just because you served in uniform doesn't mean you're a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For those type of things. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So Lee Harvey Oswald became a very bad guy. Kerry is not Lee Harvey Oswald, but in a geopolitical sense, he might as well be because he opened up the Monroe Doctrine. He, 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 he pardon me, he opened up the hemisphere to give a carte blanche to the Russians and the Chinese and the and the the, the Iranians and everybody else who wants to mess up the hemisphere and create uh, alliances against us on our southern border. The overwhelming, fortunately, the overwhelming majority of people in our country, Americans who serve in the military are great, great people. But there's always, you know, that small, small percent that come in and ruin it for everybody else and don't quite understand John Kerry's fascination with the left. But, you know, we'll just leave it at that. But I, I'm with you. Monroe Drockton lives. It's evolved and it's going to continue evolving. You mentioned El Salvador and China. And that's a good hook for something um, that's happening right now. There's a president down there. His name is Nayib Bukalele. He's a former member of the Farawundo Marti Liberation, of the, the FMLN groups out there. The, he's, he's, a, he's a creature of the left that somehow was embraced by the Trump administration as some great leader down there. I've always been very skeptical of this guy, uh, partly because he used to be, used to be, in quotes, an FMLN member who was expelled for, for some problems he had inside the party. But, you know, he, he portrays himself as a guy who's a conservative, a young guy, leader, a lot of sizzle in the pan stuff, but there's something about his politics that I don't trust, and you, you, you've uh, called attention to it, is his interesting uh, fascination with China, its Belt Road Initiative, and I think this is a good, good place to share with people, you know, what is the Belt Road Initiative, and use kind of China and El Salvador as a little example of what, why it's a problem, and why we should be kicking these people out of the hemisphere, and not embracing this sort of program. Yeah. Well, this is what happens when you have uh, national leadership that stops paying attention mm. and lets others who are paying attention have their way. Mm. And some of it's in the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development that they not only look the other way, they su actively support and actively finance the left-wing forces, anti-U.S. forces, and actively blacklist those who support the United States. It's It's so this stuff is happening with our tax dollars. But in the case of El Salvador, in the, in the 1980s, and this is when John Kerry made his debut in politics, as elected politics. In the 1980s, El Salvador was targeted by the Soviets and its Cuban and other proxies to be taken over as a Soviet satellite regime. 
And it was a long and, and terrible war to resist the communist guerrillas there. Uh, the history shows, because conservatives don't write much history, uh, history will say that it was a terrible U.S.-backed regime that the people were rising up against. I, mean, it wasn't, I was down there at the time. It wasn't like that at all. But the, what happened was we invested so much to help El Salvador become a freer country and then a very free country and, and what would have been a prosperous country. And uh, the, there was backsliding after after 20 years of a pretty good pretty good government in the country uh the, the place got kind of stale and then you had uh, hugo chavez and his venezuelan regime replacing the soviet union as the support mechanism and the cash supply for these left-wing forces so a guy like naib bukele I, I i had met his father in el salvador during the war in the early 80s his father was a communist who became a jihadist by the way his, oh, fa- his father I didn't know that. now runs runs a mosque in El Salvador. So you've got these mosques backed by Wahhabi jihadists popping up all over the place in our hemisphere. And and that seems to be okay with, with the U.S. Hmm. Uh, for some odd reason. So a- anyway, enter. Okay, so we're neglecting this place that we had invested so heavily in. And then China comes in. And so it's one belt, one road initiative is a colossal global infrastructure program to create the physical infrastructure for China to become the world's dominant imperial power. Hmm. So it's building networks across the world of railway systems and airports and highway systems and huge mining and refining operations and and deep water seaports and, and, and shipping channels and canals, everything to create a 100% Chinese Communist Party-owned global infrastructure network, the way the old imperial powers used to build uh, fortified ports and uh, to, to, to secure their colonial systems. And, of course, one of the great prizes for communist China is the American hemisphere, because if you control the Panama Canal and the trade running from Pacific to Atlantic and back, uh, you, can, you can dominate world politics that way. Uh, which is why one of the reasons the French built started the Panama Canal the way they did in Suez, Egypt, and then why the United States not only finished the Panama Canal but created the nation of Panama and uh, and had a canal zone there for a century that was sovereign American territory until Jimmy Carter gave it back. So the so but what China needed was you, you pick off a small corrupt uh, country, a small country with a co- corrupt government. And you pay the necessary bribes and you do the necessary business deals to get that government to surrender its national sovereignty to the Chinese Communist Party in exchange for cash. And this is what President Naib Bukele is doing in El Salvador. You know, why why would he invite the Chinese in there and we let him do this? You know, something interesting happened a few weeks ago, I think you followed this thing. It's a little bit in the weeds for people not in Washington, but I think it's worth talking about because this is our taxpayer money that's uh, going to be used for something. And I'm concerned that maybe there's some legislation in Congress that needs to be amended before it becomes law, where they've authorized $80 billion in pretty much our taxpayer money. It's an increase in the capital stock of the bank of the Inter-American Development Bank and authorizes appropriations to uh, correspond to that increase. And they're gonna go down, the Inter-American Development Bank folks, it's a 
the bank here in Washington. It helps fund projects in Latin America. And I'm concerned that there's no clause in here to say, hey, if there's any connection to China, China state-owned enterprises, anything China-related, um, China may end up getting money. We may end up financing projects done by China SOEs. And you know, I, I, maybe they're not concerned about it, but once it goes to the bank, we lose control. Congress can't really rein that stuff in. Uh, how do you think we can control this sort of uh, China, uh, I guess in this context, in this particular capital increase, for example, that was introduced by a bipartisan group in Congress, I think it involves even my senator here in Virginia, Senator Kane, and there's a bunch of folks on the legislation, Rubio, Cardin, Cassidy, Cardin, and a few others. But uh, how do we prevent our taxpayer money from being put into projects where China's involved in, even if it's indirectly? Well, first, the, the Chinese are using the Inter-American Development Bank as a big vehicle to finance its own Belt and Road Initiative in the hemisphere. Uh, the, uh, there's a bipartisan consensus to look the other way because there's so much money involved and so much Chinese money involved or, or pro-Chinese money of American businesses that depend on the Chinese Communist Party for a huge part of their profits who have a lot of political influence here. So you get a good you know, anti-communist like Marco Rubio doing this bipartisan bill with Senator Ben Cardin, who in the 1980s as a congressman was supporting the Castro-backed forces in Central America. So you got to wonder why, right? Mm. So another thing, though, is you have you have. And this is part of what happens when people come to Washington, even good people, they get so caught up in the, you know, what Trump correctly called the swamp, that they lose sight of the bigger uh, American interests, the national interests, and they go in toward these big multilateral institutions to fund development. So supposedly. In the region, the idea being, oh, well, if we do this as a form of capitalist loans, then it's really not American taxpayer money that's paying for it. And we're pooling it in with the Europeans and these other big uh, economic powers. And this will help Latin America to develop. Well, as you point out, there is nothing in the legislation to prevent communist China from doing what it's doing right now, which is to infiltrate the Inter-American Development Bank and to ultimately get voting power to have veto decisions over what the U.S. might want in the Inter-American Development Bank. So this is another way that the U.S. is surrendering its sovereignty to yet another multinational organization that it created and yep. to give the Chinese communists veto power over everything we're financing in our own hemisphere. And we don't have time today to talk about this, but the... The other organization in the Americas that's a real fine mess and it needs to be, frankly, forensically audited is the Organization of American States, where we have pretty much surrendered for many administrations, pretty much. We don't even sometimes I don't think we even care what we do at the OAS, which, by the way, precedes the U.N. And as you correctly stated at the beginning of the program, the Inter-American Charter, folks, uh, weaves in a lot of American it's kind of pro. You read in between the lines, and it's a document that was written with U.S. sovereignty, U.S. projection, U.S. liberty rights in mind, and we pretty much are just sitting there and and don't do much. I mean, you you consider that we there are people at the OAS who think we can do elections, for example, in a place you spent a lot of time in, Nicaragua, uh, during the Cold War, and that we can actually have elections with Daniel Ortega, which we don't even have a valid voter roll, and we just spend all this time and money spinning our wheels, 
and we don't project. Uh, I think we lost an opportunity there during the Trump administration to put an American as a secretary general, which we should have done. We should have just ignored the courtesy, the diplomatic reciprocity business, and actually reformed that place, but we didn't. I mean, what, why do we keep hitting that wall as conservatives over and over again when it comes to the Americas? Well, first, it's a frustrating place to work and operate because the, 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 there's so much squabbling in Latin American countries over silly, foolish things that it's 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 a real pain to have to work. You know, speaking as a Anglo guy, you know, who's worked, I love the hemisphere, but it's a it's a big headache. And there is so much organized militant Marxist activity down there that it makes it even all the harder. And when you don't have a Soviet Union as a uniting factor to get people interested in helping the region become secure and prosperous, and then when you have uh, not only the John Kerry's of the world, but also the uh, Marco Rubio's of the world and the Donald Trump's of the world who continue to fund and use taxpayer money to fund radical Marxist anti-U.S labor unions and political parties and legal organizations and NGOs in the region, it creates such a mess that you just want to walk away from it. But yet if you do that, you're going to, you're just giving free reign for the Chinese to come in and, and others to come in. So yet we have no choice but to continue to engage. And then, of course, we also continue to get some of the best people from those countries who leave those countries because they have the same frustrations that it's impossible for us to function in our own countries. We're going to move to the United States now. So we end up benefiting internally from it, but it just makes problems worse in the original countries. Um, but also, there's no, can you name a single university in the country that has a non-Marxist Latin American studies program? Good luck with that. Yeah. I, mean, I used to be a graduate professor, and I could, could not find one because I was looking for a feeder school where I did good undergrads from a good, solid uh, pro-U.S. Latin American studies programs to be my graduate students, and we couldn't find them. No, you're not going to find them. And um, in fact, we struggle. And these with are that. the places that educate. Yeah, and they they're the ones who educate our future diplomats and our intelligence officers and even our military officers. So we wonder why you get all this wokeness and, and <laughs> just, just lazy strategic thinking in our intelligence community and and you know our whole national security community. A lot of it is because of our higher education, which you get all these radicals indoctrinating students in how terrible the United States has been in the hemisphere and how great, uh, you know, Che Guevara was and Salvador Allende and Fidel Castro and, 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 and that Ronald Reagan was the ultimate evil in the region. So, <laughs> so we've, this is a mess that we've, we've created ourselves and it's, you know, you, we can't just necessarily blame foreign forces for it. No, no. I mean, Elam and I, uh, you know, Elam, my wife, we, we lived through this thing because we, yeah. we did our graduate work I, before I went to law school. In fact, I ended up going to law school. I always wanted to be a lawyer, but I, I went and got a master's first. And Elam and I went to Georgetown together. And that's where I was focused. That's, I did my dissertation there. And you, I won't name any professors. You probably know who these people are, so I'm not going to name them. Uh, but Elam and I, what, we did a few classes together. And one class, uh, they wanted us uh, to do um, a role-playing about Cuba, and they wanted to teach the students about Cuba, so they had one of us play this famous Cuban-American exile leader, Jorge Mascanosa, and Ilwan Fidel Castro, and oh. it, it was just the most bizarre, it was, I thought I was living on another planet, uh, some of the, and we had to, you know, 
we didn't, Elam and I are the type of people who didn't really hold back our ideological views. We were, we, we would argue from, from fact. Well, so granted, my grades weren't the best, but I was never a great student. Her grades were always great. She's a genius, but she, she was a smart one. I stayed to graduate. She transferred to another university for her PhD and did away. She stopped doing Latin America and uh, went another way completely. Uh, but there, there are none, uh, Mike, as you know, and uh, you're, you're right. We, we do need something in that space. And the IWP is pretty good uh, about filling the gap, but you have to start a little earlier in the process. If not, you lose whole generations of students, like the one I met on Capitol Hill, who's asking me, who, who, who are the Contras, which you would think they teach them who the Contras are. But anyhow, uh, I know you got to get... just as well that they didn't. Right? <laughs> yeah, just as well we, that we got... could start fresh. We could start fresh with us. <laughs> we could start fresh <laughs> yeah. with us, uh, which, by the way, I've given them a few good books, and they're totally fascinated by it, and they can't understand why they were not taught this in school. I don't either. By the way, it's an Ivy League school, so I'm not going to say the name. We'll leave it. We'll leave it there up in the Northeast somewhere. You don't need to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyhow, we've got two, two more topics and then we've got to wrap up. So let's oh, take sure. a, let's take a step out of the hemisphere a minute uh, and just give listeners a little bit of a kind of your big picture view about this China threat. You write a lot about this and I don't think Americans appreciate what a problem we may have on our hands uh, with China. What, what are your takeaways if, if for people in Washington right now that are looking at what's happening in, in this town? I'm in shock, frankly, the last not just two years, but the last eight, 10 years in this town. What do we have to start doing on China that we're not doing right now? And why is it important for Americans to pay attention oh. to this? The, the first thing is we, and before the pandemic, you couldn't say this, and you know, even to most Republicans. Mm. Uh, China, uh, under its present government, is the most dangerous potential enemy that we've ever faced in our history. Hmm. And that's saying an awful lot. It sure is. Yeah. Uh, if you can, they're doing it not through uh, overt military aggression against us, they're doing it through co optation of our decision makers, of our policy makers, of our opinion leaders, of our business leaders, our universities, to change the way we perceive things and to change the way we think and therefore to change the way we behave and to change our policies. So if, if you look back over the past few decades, uh, you, you go from uh, China becoming a, a relatively harmless, very poor agrarian country, even under Mao. Yes, it was dangerous in terms of the Korean War and even some other you know, regional conflicts on its periphery, but not as a global threat. What, what people have done, led by people like Henry Kissinger, who started out for sound reasons, which was to build a relationship with the Chinese communists to counter the Soviet Union. It was a very sound strategy at the time in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And it worked to some degree. But Kissinger went and continued by making himself and all of his friends wealthy through cozy business relationships with the Chinese Communist Party. And then expanding that through uh, investment houses like Goldman Sachs and through various manufacturers and through banks and now high tech over time to open the doors to build 
and modernize communist China under the Communist Party. It was never about democratizing it. It was always under central communist party rule. And, uh, and therefore turning China into an aggressive, subversive and military power of its own. Yep. So you have a high tech totalitarian dictatorship to the point where they will not defeat us by uh, nuclear weapons, although they're building them by the hundreds that are being aimed at us with our technology and with their own technology that they developed from ours, brand new fifth generation strategic nuclear missile fleet. Mm. Uh, they're launching uh, submarines that purport to be more advanced than our own because our designs, our hull designs are old and our Navy industrial complex is so slow in, in developing designs because they're it's not just because they're perfectionists, but there's also a big profit to going slow because Congress will fund you no matter how slow you are. <laughs> and so, so they're, they're putting together a, globally, a global power projection fleet. Uh, they, that's why they need the One Belt, One Road initiative around the world. It's, it's civilian deep water seaports, but they're dual use seaports that will accommodate any warships in the future Chinese Navy. So these, so these stories, Mike, by the way, places like, hmm? so these yeah. stories, sorry to interrupt you, but I got a quick question for you on that. What do you think there's any truth to these stories that China was supposedly wanting to build a deep water port canal and canal and port in Nicaragua? There's a lot of stories out there that Ortega was entertaining this for several years. In fact, the, whole, the, the old mosquitoes out there, the old mosquito tribe and all that got mobilized again, supposedly scared people away. But is it, would we ever really allow Nicaragua to allow China to build a canal right in our hemisphere? Well, we allowed China to take over the Panama Canal, which was our canal that we built. Mm. Um, we allowed China to widen the Panama Canal. Mm. We allowed the Chinese Communist Party to control the port facilities on the Atlantic and Pacific sides of the canal. And yeah, and we looked the other way while China did the surveys and even some of the initial um, basic construction work for a very wide, super advanced canal through Nicaragua as a rival to the Panama Canal. It's they amazing. did it all under our noses and it stopped for, for reasons that uh, had very little to do with U.S. pressure. It was more, it was more economical for the Chinese to, to stay in Panama, but they still have that Nicaragua option. It's amazing. Amazing. So, 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 what does Washington think? It's so easy to squeeze these these regimes. Like Daniel Ortega, you know, you think we were fighting him thirty seven years ago. That's, I mean, that's when I started down there with the Contras, Uh, and he's still in power. Yeah. And we had the opportunity with the Contras to finish him off, finish off his entire regime. But you had certain the Democrat elements and Republican elements in the the first Bush administration, who cut the Contras off at the knees, who right when they're in the cusp of, of, of having a real chance at victory, same thing in El Salvador to defeat the communist guerrillas there, cut off the victorious guys at the knees and then give the communists a chance to, to survive and indeed let them survive as long as they would democratize. And look what we get. We get Ortega still in power in Nicaragua and we get the communists running El Salvador who uh, or handing it over to the Chinese. And this is thanks to uh, certain well-known Western Hemisphere-oriented 
conservatives or Republicans who helped engineer all this. And that wasn't their intent, but that was the result of their short-sighted policies because, of course, they knew better. Well, I think it's amazing, by the way, even on China policy, but also on Latin America policy and all this business, that if you look at the think tanks in town, there really isn't a lot of divergence of thought with your, with the exception of you, you know, the Center for Security Policy and maybe one or two others, but everyone kind of agrees and they let things happen. Nobody does anything. It's just even the conservative think tanks, regrettably, uh, they go along with some of this duality that I can't quite figure out why. Yeah donors put up with that because they're not really projecting the American, the conservative fight anywhere in the world. Um, and it's frustrating, but uh, on China. Well, yeah, you get, you get ahead. liberal, you get, you get liberal and left-wing donors are generally far more generous overall than conservative donors are generally. There are some very generous conservative donors, but really uh, we found in, in our, you know, experience i'm not saying i'm not speaking for my organization but just the collective we people like us that conservative donors tend to be uh cheaper and, and they nickel and dime you a lot more than the <laughs> liberal and left-wing donors do and then also when a when a think tank in washington becomes too big you have to wonder which foreign country has that money come from that's a good point. You know, we haven't talked about that. And, well, look, and look at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. It gets, what, millions of dollars from the jihadists in Qatar and from the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, it would the Georgetown University would collapse if it wasn't for all the Chinese Communist money going in there. And the Saudi money, too. And you could say the same about Harvard. Yeah, yeah. So all these, you know, anti-democratic, anti-Western, uh, you know, even enemy money coming in, taking over our institutions because of Chinese students pay cash because nearly all of them are from Communist Party families. And they're culturally, they will pay cash up front for things. You know, Whereas what, American what, students are there on loans and scholarships that are effectively being subsidized by the Chinese Communist Party students. So these universities don't want to do anything to alienate the Chinese. So they, they won't, meaning the Chinese communists, so they will not tolerate any substantial uh, academic study in that field that's critical of the Chinese regime. You know, it's amazing that over at Princeton University, we, we did some work with um, Shi Wei Wang, who represented him when he was a hostage in Iran. He was a Princeton PhD student that we were able to help to, you know, bring out during the Trump administration. One of the few hostages we were able to get out of Iran, he was one of them. And it's amazing to me at Princeton uh, how many Iranian regime elite children are attending school there and it's like nothing they don't i don't think they care that they're giving sanctuary to these people i kick them all out of the country i don't think they belong here if you want to be part of the elites of iran you shouldn't be studying in american schools but i don't think these ivy league universities care they even have the spokesman the former spokesman of javad zarif the uh, uh, that who was there during the jcpoa business they have a student held hostage in iran for four years and you barely heard anything out of Princeton. Meanwhile, these Iranian regime officials are getting tenured positions at an Ivy League university. It boggles the mind why we let that happen. Yeah, yeah, and you know, print, and then you got the Biden Center over there, right? Yeah, yeah, the Biden Center is over there also. I mean, it, and then the Chinese, by the way. I mean, you mentioned the Chinese. What tell tell our listeners briefly what the um, those cultural centers that they put at the universities are those, I forget the name of those centers. Oh, the they, Confucius. Those play, yeah. yeah, the Confucius. What are those things? <laughs> well, these are, these are really nice ways for American students to learn about China and Chinese studies and the Chinese language and great centers for uh, 
for the Chinese students to get to know the American students and then invite them back to China to learn more. Wow. Sounds no, innocent well, to me, right? No, that's, yeah. no, that's, that's the line <laughs> we're being fed, right? That's the line. The real thing is these are Chinese Communist Party outposts that are placed in U.S. universities where the universities surrender their own academic sovereignty to the Chinese Communist Party-controlled institute. That institute then brings in and selects the mm. best students to study Mandarin language, study Chinese culture and history and so forth. But what it is, it's an intelligence operation to assess and to cultivate and to ultimately recruit promising American students who are going to go somewhere in business or journalism or education or culture or politics or diplomacy or intelligence. And so these are Chinese recruitment grounds to re to recruit unwitting Americans to become agents of influence or spies for the Chinese Communist Party. Well, they should all be kicked out of and America. They pay the, absolutely. But like, say, university, some universities have kicked them out on their own. Uh, the National Security Agency, which gets its linguists from some of these universities and its cryptographers and so forth, one of our, you know, most, our, our largest intelligence agency, told the University of Texas system that it will discredit the university and make the, the graduates' diplomas worthless in their fields unless those universities got rid of the Confucius Institutes. It was an amazing thing. It happened. It actually happened. But places like, say, University of New Hampshire are fighting to keep the Confucius Institutes because they're smaller universities with a smaller amount of, of public funding, at, but, but a good amount of Chinese Communist Party funding. So they're borrowing into even rural America to, to propagandize and, and recruit American students. Now, during the Cold War, this stuff was happening with the Soviets. It wouldn't be this way. Why? Why? You know, I was when I, mean, I grew up in I was born in 70. So I was kind of the end beginning of the end of that. You know, as I became of age, the Cold War was at its peak. And then maybe it ended. Maybe it didn't. Who knows? But, you know, if, if you had heard if the Soviets had had all these little study centers every because there's a lot more Chinese Confucius centers floating around than there were any type of Russia exchange programs back then. Today, what what's wrong with people? Why haven't they made the connection, as you said earlier, that China's a big problem, probably the largest problem we've had as a nation, uh, global, frankly, a threat to our global power someday. What, what's, why can't Americans or why hasn't there been that pushback from the political class that there was against the Soviets back then? There's too much money involved. But some money. If money. you want to have a Chinese language program or a Chinese studies program at your university, you have to have access to send students to China. You have to. And that's how the Soviets were able to grant and deny visas to people based on how pro-Soviet you were or how anti-American you were. So the Chinese have a, communists have a similar thing. But also, it's uh, you get these, these new class of, of Chinese Communist Party millionaires and billionaires who give away a lot of money, like at the Biden Center at Princeton. You know, who was paying Joe Biden's salary after he left as vice president during the Trump years? It was the Chinese Communist Party through the Biden Center. Mm. That's why they're being so secretive about the nature of the funds through that school there. So you have a ton of money involved to make it more lucrative than ever to be a professor, especially if you write on or have a policy impact on things like U.S. relations with China. And then you select students this way and you hire new faculty this way. And, oh, let's hire someone from Qingdao University in China to come and teach here. So now you're bringing 
Chinese Communist Party members, Chinese nationals, to teach at U.S. universities and then displace, say, Taiwanese professors or uh, Chinese-American professors or other Chinese professors who had to live in exile because they, they opposed the Communist Party and who could give the proper uh, perspective about what what it's really like in China and what the party's uh, objectives are toward the United States. Those people, you don't see them at, at, at many universities at all. And the few that you do see are there only because of the tenure system. Mm-hmm. We've been talking to Dr. Michael Waller with the Center for Security Policy, president of the George of Georgetown Research here in Washington, D.C. You know, Mike, as we have to wrap up, we could keep going. Uh, but before we do, uh, we always ask our guests uh, to folks who are listening here in the States. Uh, we're heard in almost 80 countries, but the folks here in the States who want to get more active, who want, because we get we get calls all the time about what can we do? How can how can we get involved? These are people who don't, that don't aren't involved in politics, don't live here. What do you recommend they do uh, to get more involved besides reading to alert their Congress people, their congressmen and women, or even locally to become more aware about the the problems, not only from China, but from other foreign problems in the hemisphere as well, for example? Well, this would apply to, to Americans, but also really anyone in the world. You can you, you, They should be involved in their own countries as well. But one of the easy things, which you pointed out at the beginning, Jason, was that members of Congress don't know very much about a lot of things. They're, they know things in their narrow areas. They hire staff to help them. But as you found out, even well-meaning staffers don't know too much. Mm. So members of Congress are very open to being influenced by others for good and bad ends. They, they, few of them think they're doing it for bad ends, but yeah, a lot yeah. of them end up doing it that way. But this is where they can be really involved. So it's when you say, write your congressman, it seems kind of trite or some sort of useless exercise. But in fact, these uh, lawmakers and at least their staff read and they track the messages from constituents in their states or districts every day. And they keep tallies of, of who contacts them or how many people contact them and the intensity of what they feel about one thing or another. So by keeping in contact with your members of Congress, and it's much easier to meet your local congressman than it would seem. A lot of people feel intimidated by this. And this is where I would talk to especially younger people in their, in their teens and 20s. Go out and just make it a point to get to know your congressman and, right. and even get a job there even as a volunteer. So I got started. I was 18 years old and and I went to my congressman's office in Washington and said, hey, can I have an internship? And they said, yeah, great, because they like the free labor. That's and right. as long as you're <laughs> you're OK doing sort of the lowest of the low <laughs> grade work, um, the way congressional offices are, if, if the if the congressman doesn't show up, you can still get business done in the office. But if the interns don't show up to do the grunt work, the office will grind to a halt right. uh, and just do good work and get involved. But but sort of, you know, use social media about this. It's very, very important. Uh, use humor when you can. I generally use cynicism and sarcasm, which is not always a good thing, and, and it can be demoralizing. But use you know, imagery, you, you know, every, any way you can on whatever platform you can. It, it, it's a great way to get a lot of personal training. It's a great way to get networked. It's a great way to get uh, recognition. And then you're sort of building a portfolio there. And if you if you tr- treat your tweets, if you can do entire threads, say on Twitter or on some of the other platforms, 
you can develop your own logic in the threads that you create. So you, you tie each of those, those tweets or posts together. Before you know it, you've got a 600-word op-ed piece practically written, which is about the size that a local newspaper would want to run. And then you, you can just rearrange those thoughts that you might get at a random moment and have it all down there on the record, tie it all together and submit it someplace to publish. And it's, it's much easier, of course, to get published now than it ever was, especially for people who think the way we do, Jason. Right? That's right. Well, and, it, and it's easier to get involved than with technology. Like you said, you can be out there helping shape public opinion. If, and if you're good at it, you never know. You can even become famous like Mike. So this, this is great, sir. Thank you so much. <laughs> for spending time with us today. We hope, we hope you'll come back. We, we only touched the surface of a few things, but I'm sure that we can, uh, we're gonna get a lot of mail on this. We'll send you the questions and hopefully we'll have you back for another show. Great, well, it's been great to be with you, Jason. Thanks for having me on. That's this, we've been talking to Mike Waller, Senior Analyst for Strategy at the Center for Security Policy, President of Georgetown Research. Thanks for joining us. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you. So that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.